The scripture this morning is from the book of Mark, chapter 12, verses 35 through 44. Hear the word of the Lord. While Jesus was teaching in the temple courts, he asked, Why do the teachers of the law say that the Messiah is the son of David? David himself, speaking by the Holy Spirit, declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? The large crowd listened to him with delight. As he taught, Jesus said, Watch out for the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. These men will be punished most severely. Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts, but a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins, worth only a few cents. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all that she had to live on. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Good morning. It's good to be in the house of the Lord with you. Uh, My name's Chris Gregory, and as Rick said, uh, I have the privilege of serving here with uh, Kim Kirk and Monica Gutai as the director of children's ministry. And I did want to tell you, uh, my children, probably like your children, uh, were out of school this week. So uh, this was my power week. This was the week where I was going to crank it out. And uh, of course... uh, that didn't go quite the way I had anticipated. And so as, as the word comes to us this morning, I, I need you to know uh, this is piercing my heart. Uh, I regularly this week uh, was snappy with my children, uh, neglectful. Uh, so this isn't something that God has for you out there necessarily. It's also something that is very piercing to me up here. Uh, Having said that, this morning we're going to talk about God's opinion. Uh, Certainly in Scripture we see throughout God does have opinions about things. He's not in the mushy middle. In fact, if anything, God is righteous. So God's opinions are right. Uh, We always talk about whose opinion matters the most. And in the final say, it's ultimately, what does God say? He's the one who calls the shot. And so some of the folks we're going to look at today are heroes, some are villains. But I think it's always good to look at for a second, we're going to talk about the hero. We're going to talk about a villain. We're going to talk about my hero. But then ultimately, the text underneath all of this is, sitting here right now this morning, what does God think about you? If God were to scratch his head and go, boy, that that Kelly, that Mike, that Jeff, that Cheryl, what do you think God, his verdict, his opinion would be about us? And by the way, that Chris very much in this too. But before we delve into that, let's pray. Father, thank you that your word is a double-edged sword, that it cuts us, uh, that it breaks hard hearts, that it heals marriages that it heals our hearts, that it restores, that we don't interrogate it, it interrogates us. And so, Father, uh, would you glorify yourself this morning? Thank you 
for these dear brothers and sisters, especially uh, on Sanctity of Life Sunday for these mothers, um, especially remember Leah, uh, who delivered yesterday. Um, it's a privilege to be in your house. Now would you glorify yourself, and it's through Christ that I pray this. Amen. Uh, as you can see, we're in Mark chapter 12, and this passage can't make sense apart from two things. You have to know two things coming into this. Number one is Jesus' great passion throughout his life was always for his Father's glory. Always. Jesus, in a sense, uh, referred to himself often as being a sort of mirror. As people would glorify him, he would always say, no, no, no. It's my father, and he would reflect the glory right back to his heavenly father. And by the way, that's my call, that's your call, as we're following Christ, is to act as that mirror when people say uh, wonderful, glorifying things. It's our call to reflect that right back to the God and walk in Jesus' footsteps. But number two, uh, and you're going to see that passion in a second. Number two, though, you have to understand the historical context. Otherwise, this passage won't make sense. Uh, Israel had about 700 years of oppression at this point. Um, uh, Perhaps in the last election, uh, you were despairing. Oh, the world's going to end. I can't believe this. Perhaps for the eight years before that, you're on the other side. Oh, this is the worst ever. Can you eight years of this uh, or one year of this? Uh, 700 years of this. And by the way, no political leader here has ever come up to me and said, by the way, you can't worship Jesus anymore. 700 years of brutal oppression. Number one, at the hands of Assyria, then Babylon, Persia came in, and then Greece. And so Jesus, uh, I'm sorry, and then who took over Greece? Rome. So in this sense... Enter Jesus, and Jesus is leading this. There had been several rebellions. Here's Jesus, the Messiah, self-proclaimed Messiah, God-proclaimed Messiah, and people are going, oh, I know what to expect. Finally, I think uh, if, if Jesus had had a campaign manager and they said, Jesus, uh, I think I know what your message is going to be, and I'd like to print some T-shirts, I bet they would have looked like this. Uh, this, is, <laughs> this is what I'm here for, baby. Uh, right, Jesus? Isn't that, isn't that, isn't that what you're going to be doing here, Jesus? And we even read, uh, Jesus, um, frequently had to go to people and say, I'm not here for that. Look at John, uh, very quickly, John chapter six, Jesus even says, uh, we read, John says, perceiving that they were about to make him a king, Jesus withdrew himself. Oh. Boy, these messianic hopes, these expectations were for this radical leadership. And Jesus is frequently withdrawing from that. I'm not here to make Israel great again, at least not in the sense that you think. And by the way, in the New Testament, as we're talking about Israel, we read that Israel is you and I. It's the church. It's the people of God. Old Testament people of God called Israel. New Testament people of God called Israel the church. Uh, By the way, Jesus' verdict on the church is, you are my beloved. You're my beloved. So, Jesus has this zeal for the kingdom, and that's where we get to where we're at today. So, starting reading in verse 35, we read, while Jesus was teaching in the temple courts. Now, just for a second, that's bold. Uh, If you're going to uh, pick a fight uh, not only does he go to Jerusalem, uh, and this happened on the Wednesday of his, the final week of his earthly ministry here, not only does he go to Jerusalem, but he goes to ground zero of ground zero. 
he goes to the temple courts where he could teach. Now, we always hear, uh, I think politically speaking, uh, we need a great uniter. Uh, This is somebody that everybody can get behind. And I want you guys to know, everyone was united in their absolute hatred of Jesus. He had done it. Uh, The Pharisees typically didn't like the scribes. The scribes didn't like the Sadducees. They they all hated the Herodians. Jesus had brought them all together (laughs) in hatred of him. And by the way, so where does he go, by the way? Do you see how aggressive this is? And not only that, he goes to the center of Judaism, where there was nothing but scribes and Pharisees and Sadducees, and and they were following him around. They clearly would have overheard his teaching. Uh, They were constantly watching for him to make mistakes. Now he's sitting in the temple, uh, this united front. And for the first time in Scripture, instead of them asking him questions, we read here that Jesus turns the table on this united front and starts to question them. Uh, Jesus has the right to question me. So he asks, why do the teachers of the law, and that, the word for that is scribe, why do the scribes, the teachers of the law, say that the Messiah is the son, and by the way, son here, uh, descendant, okay, the word... It's often in Scripture you would read uh, somebody's son. It just means descendant. Why do they say that the Messiah is the descendant of David? Now, this was all throughout the Old Testament. Jesus actually is frequently called in the New Testament, son of David. Have mercy on me, son of David. Are you going to restore Israel now, son of David? Typical title for him. Uh, why? Because David was the picture that Israel had of the great king, uh, Prior to becoming the king, what did David do? He was the shepherd. Boy, Israel was going, we need a shepherd. What did David do when he was a very young boy? He killed Goliath. And the kids are gone, so he cut off his head when he was done. I mean, he, he slaughtered Goliath. We want somebody to slaughter the giant of Rome. David was a prophet. In fact, we're going to read in a minute Psalm 110. It's one of David's prophecies. Boy, we can't wait for another prophet like David. David performed priestly duties. Oh, we can't wait for another priest. David was our king. Oh, God's going to send another king. In fact, uh, I sort of thought of this image of a Swiss army knife. You know, David did it all, man. Uh, This was a great king. And so you can see why Israel's going, we need David. We need him to come back. And God had promised there's going to be another king of the line of David. Kind of like David. So these messianic expectations were incredibly high, especially when you combine that with the fact that Rome had their boot firmly on the Jewish people's neck. Again, we think a year is hard or eight years is hard. Try half a millennia. Um, When are you going to make Israel great again? When are you going to fix everything? Verse 36, Jesus is now expanding what David said. He says this. David himself, speaking by the Holy Spirit. So what's Jesus' view of Old Testament Scripture? It's inspired by the Holy Spirit. When you read, it, when you read your Bible, when you pick it up, you're reading something that the Holy Spirit wrote through men. That they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. But Jesus is here affirming that Bible you have in your hands was written by God to you. Jesus is speaking, uh, excuse me, David speaking through the Holy Spirit. And what is he saying? The Lord said to my Lord, what? Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. The Lord said to my Lord, what's going on here? Um, First of all, uh, I think this is sort of amazing. Um, We know that God is one. 
but God is also three persons, right? We have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Uh, we call it the Godhead or the Trinity. And what we are given here is something that uh, is actually kind of rare. Uh, we are almost, in a sense, overhearing a conversation. Uh, the Lord said to my Lord, what will the Spirit has enabled David to prophesy and say, you know when the Trinity gets together in fellowship? Because that's what God does, right? He, he relates to himself perfectly, this love relationship going on. Here's what they talk about. And so we get in this sense, this picture of the Godhead having a conversation within itself. Uh, it's a rare glimpse Via the Holy Spirit. So we're overhearing this conversation. And what does the Lord say to my Lord? What's going on here? Well, he says this. Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Now, the significance of the right hand is this. David is prophesying, saying, hey, there's going to come a Messiah. But he's better than me. God never asked me to sit at his right hand. David is saying this about himself, by the way. This Messiah, he's going to be my Lord David says, he's going to be my Lord. That means greater than me. But also, God's going to look at him and say, you're my right-hand man. God never said that to David. So the Jewish expectation wasn't too big. It was too small. Jesus is saying, the one who's coming after me is going to be so much better than me. He's going to be God's right-hand man. And the, the, the thing that I can imagine, I, I think when I think about this, is how many times, uh, if you're like me, we've got, we've got a ton of kids, and so we try to sneak away with each one individually. And sometimes it's something as small as let's go to the grocery store. And sometimes it's something... Actually, it's usually like, let's just go to the grocery store. But... Uh, <laughs> Because uh, if we do something cool, everybody wants to go. Um, but it's, it, there's so many times, you know, I'll grab Christopher or, or Ella, and I'll say, hey, let's go do something just you and me. This, this is you and Dad right here. Well, look at what God says. Hey, buddy, sit at my right hand. You're my man. You're my son. Look at the paternal love we have here between God the Father and God the Son. And what does he say? In a sense, son, sit at my right hand. And I'll take care of everything. The security there. What is, what's he going to do? Sit at my right hand and I will put all of your enemies under your feet for you. So what is the Trinity? What is the Father saying to the Son? It's words of affirmation. It's words of love. And let me tell you this, beloved. If Jesus Christ is your Lord and your Savior, the same affirmation, the same love, the same passion that God has for Jesus Christ You've been adopted into that. You've been engrafted into that. That's the way he feels about you. The other night, uh, Jim Pfeiffer came and, uh, with Cheryl and spoke at Cadets. And as he was praying, uh, he said, Father, thank you that you are nuts about these kids. Guys, the Father is nuts about the Son. The Son is nuts about the Father. And if you're adopted, they're nuts about you. You've been put into that family. So what's God's opinion of you if you're in Christ? It's the same as if you were God's son. I'm nuts about you. I want to protect you. You can come into his presence with great joy. The other thing uh, is, as we look at this, uh, we, just a minute, I want to pick apart this whole, the Lord said to my Lord, it's important, uh, especially in our thinking of, of, we use this phrase, I think, a lot, Jesus Christ is my Lord and my Savior. What is it that we're saying here? Well, 
in Psalm 110, by the way, this is the most quoted psalm in the whole New Testament, uh, quoted 33 times. It's a messianic psalm. Everybody understood it was referring to the Messiah. The first Lord should be translated Yahweh. Now, Yahweh was this holy word. If you were Jewish, uh, you didn't say it, you didn't write it, you didn't think about it if you could avoid it uh, because the second commandment concerns. But so the first Lord here should be translated Yahweh. It literally means I am. When Moses said, who should I say sent me? God said, Yahweh, I am, then I am. Uh, We would refer to that really as God. Okay, the Lord God, if you will. The second Lord that's used here, the Lord God, said to my Lord, in the Hebrew, uh, could be translated Adonai. It's not the same word. Uh, Yahweh said to Adonai. Adonai does not mean the Lord God. The Lord God said to, what is Adonai? It, It translates as master. So you could read this as, and probably... Oh, my translation up there. Well, anyway. The Lord, oh, yeah, it was. Okay. The Lord God said to my master. So here David is saying, look, by the way, this Messiah that's coming, that's going to be of my lineage, I call him master. Now, what's the implication there for you and I? If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, if you have made him your Savior and your Lord, you have handed over the reins of your life to someone else and said, you're going to be my master. You're my master and my savior. Um, So who has the final say-so in your life? And the truth is, for most of us, at the end of the day, it's ourselves. Uh, The biggest idol in Chris Gregory's life is Chris Gregory. Uh, The problem is not out there. The problem is very much in here. And so I regularly have to wake up and find Jesus again. Father, I'm giving my life to you again. Uh, Not that I'm unsaved, but just as an act of submission. Father, what do you want to see happen today? How do you want me to use my time, my words, my lips, my love, my life? It's yours. You're the master. I'm not. Verse 37. David himself calls him master. Uh, And by the way, just a quick note here as we're talking about Sanctity of Life Sunday, um, the prophecy uh, that Elizabeth gives when Jesus is still in the womb ends with, he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever and his kingdom will never end. Uh, This is amazing. Uh, David's kingdom ended very quickly uh, after Solomon. Uh, We worship a king who's greater than David. His kingdom will never end. In America, we're a democracy, but let me tell you this, we're a monarchy. If you're a believer, we are part of a kingdom that will go on for eternity. And so I I think about loved ones, perhaps, that have passed away. Um, I think about Sanctity of Life Sunday, perhaps children uh, that have passed away before being born. They're part of the kingdom. This is a kingdom that if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you're going to pass into eternity, into this kingdom, and be reunited with your loved ones but more importantly, be in the presence of Jesus Christ. It's a kingdom that doesn't end. So, uh, continuing on in verse 37, Jesus says, So how can he be his son? 
the idea here was the father is always greater than the son. And the answer, of course, is, well, David knew this, this would be his descendant. But David also put his faith in this, this Messiah that was going to come. How are you saved in the New Testament? By faith in Jesus Christ. How are you saved in the Old Testament? By forward-looking faith in Jesus Christ. So David, looking uh, forward, said, hey... Uh, this Messiah that's coming, I'm putting my faith so much so that even though I'm a king, he's going to be my Lord. He's going to be my master. Now, what's interesting, a little side note, is that means also that Joseph, Jesus' uh, earthly father, uh, had to put his faith in his son. And Mary did too. And it gets really interesting. Uh, this is the Levinson sitting here. Um, I'm going to use you guys as an example for a second. Uh, let's say that Nathaniel perhaps was the Messiah. Abby? Now, uh, guess what? <laughs> One day you're going to have to put your faith. I mean, think about that. James and Jude, uh, we have the books by them, were Jesus' brothers. At some point they had to come to the conclusion that my big brother is my master. Uh, great. He already wins every argument. Uh, you're always taking his side. Great. Uh, and of course, and if you read James, you see that, uh, James was excited about that. And what do we read? The large crowd listens to him with delight. Uh, boy, I am delighted, uh, that, that I am not my own, that this descendant from David is coming to establish a kingdom that's better than David's was. Uh, may it delight us. Number two, if Jesus is the hero, capital T, capital H, the hero, let's talk about villains. Boy, how would you like for that to be God's opinion of you? Again, uh, if God renders a judgment, it's right, it's true. And so God looks uh, now away from Jesus. We, we turn the spotlight to another group of people. Oh, man. And they're villains. Uh, they're clearly uh, at odds with what God is trying to do in this world. And by the way, uh, is it the pagans? Is it the atheists? Is it the New Age movement? Uh, is it perhaps uh, some remnant from some cult? Well, let's look here. As he taught, uh, again at the temple, Jesus said, Watch out for the teachers of the law. The Bible teachers. The law refers to the Old Testament. Watch out for those who are teaching the Bible. R.C. Sproul says this, Anyone who is put in a position of ecclesiastical, uh, that is church leadership, with the responsibility to feed the sheep of Christ, has an enormous power to mislead the flock of God. Beloved, please pray for your leaders. More on that in a second. Jesus says they like, to, uh, they like to see marriages healed. They like to see people come into the kingdom. They like to preach the word. No! Here's what they like to do. They like to walk around in ancient Near Eastern power suits, <laughs> flowing robes. Uh, they like to be greeted with respect in the marketplace. When somebody walked by in their flowing robes, everyone was required to stop working and bow their head. Imagine that kind of power. Um, Christopher in here? Okay, I'm going to use him as an example. Don't tell him. Um, Christopher uh, got paired up with Rick and Doug at our service day uh, a couple months ago. And uh, they painted this hall at Mallard Creek Elementary. Uh, and when Christopher got done, he came up and he said, Dad, I was paired with Rick. And I said, oh, that's cool. How did it go? Uh, and, and he said, well, I didn't want to talk to him. And I said, I, okay, why not, buddy? And he said, because he's like a movie star. <laughs> was, uh, 
Uh, look at that. All right, buddy. Uh, uh, that, hey, that needs to stay between us, by the way. Uh, but <laughs> let me get back on track here. Um, they, 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 but look, greeted with respect in the marketplace. Let me have a quick word about Rick. This is the most unself-aggrandizing, uh, self-effacing. Rick thought that was the funniest thing in the world. Uh, but Boy, is that not seductive? Can you not see the power, the gravitas of that? Uh, man, fame? What else? They have the most important seats at the synagogue. This is funny. Uh, uh, synagogues, you've got to understand, the chairs that we're sitting in are modern inventions. Uh, the Last Supper, they, we know were, from Scripture, were reclining. Uh, synagogues, no one had seats except one person. You would have one seat in the very front that faced all the little people who were sitting down. And you knew that the person sitting there was important because there was only one seat. And so they would sit, and during the sermon, uh, while the person was reading the scroll, they would nod their head piously and look and sort of go, Father, thank you that I'm not like them. I'm, I'm important. I have this seat here. Now, this becomes important Oh, and finally, they had the place of honor at banquets, uh, which, by the way, uh, people were starving back then. So to be invited to a banquet, it's a big deal. Uh, And you always had a scribe there to kind of validate your importance. And Jesus is here saying, remember what we said at the beginning, you cannot understand this passage without understanding Jesus' zeal for his Father's glory. So Jesus is talking about, here are, the, here are the spiritual leaders. Here are the people who say, I come in the name of the Lord Most High. You can trust me. And they're stealing all the glory. And they're saying, yeah, I am like a movie star. And God's kind of a big deal. But I'm kind of a big deal too. And I want the perks. And so they had lost their vision. And so the perks became the main thing. And honestly, you can almost imagine, because of Jesus' hunger to see his father glorified, in a sense, he's pulling his hair out here saying, look at these guys. They're the wolves in sheep's clothing. They're supposed to shepherd the flock, not rob them blind. What are they doing? They devour widows' houses. They're in here. They're in the important seats. They're coming in the name of God, but secretly they have a double life. Maybe you can relate. And if you can, know that Jesus died for that too. They're devouring widows' houses. How? Well, you can't get paid to be a scribe. It's forbidden. And so common practice was uh, you're teaching, you need support. And as Rick was talking about, who are you going to go to? Well, wolves go for the vulnerable, right? In the wild and in the church. Uh, It's a common practice for wolves to slip in and they pick out the most vulnerable. Who was the most vulnerable? Widows. No husband to protect, no husband to provide. But hey, sister, ah, if you're willing to give me a little money, I know you don't have anything, but if you could just give me whatever little bit you have, I will go to God for you. Uh, I will pray for him to bless you. I will give you this handkerchief that has a uh, blessing on it. And when you wear it, your throat won't hurt. Whatever. Uh, By the way, what's that called? What do we call that now? What type of gospel? It's not a gospel. It's a different religion. What do we call that now? It's the prosperity gospel. It is nothing new. 
nothing new. It's always been around. There have always been false prophets coming along. And by the way, it's especially prevalent in third world countries. So those of you who have been to third world countries, you know so often someone will come in the name of the Lord, they'll come in the name of Jesus, and rob the country blind all in the name of religion. Um, I think part of the reason is that these folks in a, perhaps a Haiti or uh, that's where I've been the most, uh, desperate for a handout. And somebody comes and says, I can guarantee you a handout, but first I'll need a check. And so these poor people who are so desperate, in this case it was widows, uh, desperate to get out, say, okay, and they are devoured. Um, I did want to take a minute too. I appreciated the end of that crisis pregnancy video because it said, here's what you can do to help. Um, if, you, if that resonates with you, uh, this idea of fighting a false gospel. And it's not a gospel. It's a different religion entirely. Uh, we have missionaries uh, over here in the back. Sean, should I ask you to stand up? Yeah, go ahead and stand up. Uh, this is Sean and Be- uh, and this is Bride Becky and uh, all the kids there. Uh, they are MTW missionaries. Uh, Sean is an ordained pastor in our denomination. This is so cool. Sean's desire is to head to South Africa where the, this prosperity gospel is especially prevalent and start a seminary for solid biblical teaching because the way you get rid of darkness is more light. So Sean's heart is to go in the, uh, to South Africa and start a seminary. Um, would you pray about maybe supporting him? Uh, they're raising support right now to do that. Uh, but this is what Jesus is talking about. And by the way, what do these men do after they rob widows blind, they devour their houses? For a show, they make the lengthy prayers. Um, and of course, Jesus is saying... I'll be their advocate. I'm going to warn you against these guys. Stay away. Uh, and finally, what is it? what's this verdict on them? Uh, their punishments, how does he say it? They will be punished most severely. Okay, not severely, most severely. Now, this is important. Um, we sometimes can fall into this trap, and it, and it happens in the church, but it happens in other areas too, where we go, well, don't worry. They're going to get what's coming to them. Uh, and what we mean by that is, in this life, uh, anyone who transgresses, especially in perhaps a, a way that we consider to be especially grievous, uh, th- they'll be found out and they'll get caught. Well, the reality is, if I can just be honest, how many times does that not happen? It happens a lot. And sometimes, even in the Psalms, you hear David going, Lord, how long will you let the wicked go unpunished? The righteous suffer, the wicked prosper. What we see in this passage is Jesus says these men will will be punished most severely. Maybe not in this life, maybe. But if not in this life, because sin has to be punished, right? Sin will always be punished. It cannot remain unpunished. In the next life, perhaps they'll be punished in hell. If they don't turn from their sin, uh, that punishment will be poured out on them for eternity. Or, if they repent, if they turn to Jesus Christ and they trust him as their master and savior, that punishment was all poured out on the head of your Lord and my Lord, Jesus Christ. But either way, that punishment will be meted out, either for eternity or on the cross of Christ. It applies to me, it applies to you also. Finally, uh, oh, (laughs) I did want to say this. Um... Would you please, please, please uh, pray for your ruling elders, your teaching elders, uh, your deacons, 
your exalt members, uh, for Matt over there, uh, for Kim and Monica, uh, please, and others, Randy, others, would you please lift them up regularly? I think uh, there can be a special vulnerability to those who serve in the ministry. I, at least there is for me. Uh, number three, we've talked about the hero. We've talked about my hero. Uh, let's talk about, or excuse me, a villain. And now we're going to talk about an unlikely hero who's really my hero. Throughout Scripture, you can't miss the fact that God has a passion for the poor, the discarded, the vulnerable, uh, especially widows and orphans. It was not uncommon, by the way, for Jesus to do something that you never did. Mike, I'm thinking of you because you're a doctor. Uh, you know where you didn't go? You never went to a leper colony. Jesus had no problem with that. Who are the people who, uh, as Rick said, we begin to look and go, well, their life doesn't quite matter as much. We can, can we put them somewhere where we don't have to see or smell them or deal with them and just wait for them to die already? That was the lepers. And Jesus was attracted to these places like a magnet. Uh, I think our lives are like that too, by the way. Look for the places with the most hurt, the most embarrassment, the most pain, the most brokenness. And those seem to be the places that God is just drawn to. Those are the places where you can find God working. C.S. Lewis said pain is God's megaphone. Last week, Rick spoke about the greatest commandment, right? Uh, from Deuteronomy 6, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And Rick made the point that what we're talking about here is love God with your all. And I want to tell you, when somebody says, what has God given you? Uh, you know, I'm not tooting my own horn, but it's natural for me to think, uh, God gave me my family. Thank you, God. Uh, because they just kind of came to me. Uh, I'm Presbyterian. God gave me my faith. Uh, that was a gift from God. I didn't, I didn't produce it. God gave me my job. Thank you, Lord, uh, for <laughs> staff that puts up with me. God gave me my wife. God gave me my money. That's a little trickier because all the other things kind of land on you. Uh, boy, faith, love, family, that, that kind of money. I kind of, it's tricky because we do something and then we're compensated for it. So we feel a little more possessive of it because in a sense we earned it. And so love God with your all when it gets to money. Well, everything else, we're kind of nodding, yes, yes, yes. And then we get to, and, and also that includes your money. And we go, well, well let's not be rash. <laughs> let's, not, uh, let's not go overboard here. But yes, love God with your all. What is included in all things? All things, including, yes, my money, your money, our money. It's all included in there. And so we come to this passage here, and, and, and this is uh, verse 41. Oh, I just ended it. Oops. You know, Chris said, don't do that. And I think I just did it. Okay, that's okay. We're in verse 41. It's in your Bible. Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put, and he watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts, but a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a few cents. About 164th of a day's wage is what it amounted to. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, truly, uh, in other words, listen, guys, truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. And they were rich. They all gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, and there's three words that this whole, if you're going to understand this passage, hang on. Out of her poverty, she put in everything. 
She put in everything. This verse is not about those evil rich or those always virtuous poor. This verse is about, a wi- we don't even have her name, a widow that Jesus happened to see, probably because she was dressed in rags, because widows were poor and discarded back then. Jesus looked and he said, she just gave everything she has. She held nothing back. That's radical trust. What was Jesus' zeal? To glorify the Father. How is the God glorified? When you hold nothing back from Him. Love the Lord your God with your all. Now the the obvious question is, yeah, but, but what about her security? Oh, she had security. It just wasn't misplaced the way ours is. Her security was in the God that she knew would provide for her. Her security was in the God that she knew would take care of her if she gave away financially for his glory out of devotion to him. Her security was, and I know something of God. And we look at this and we go, well, that's a neat call to her, but certainly that's not my call. Oh, yes, it is. But not just with money. My call is to donate everything I have. That includes my time. That includes my talents. If I work 40 hours a week, a good place to start is to, my friend John told me this, and I like this. If I work 40 hours a week, a good thing to think about is praying four hours a week because that's 10%. That's half an hour in the morning and half an hour at night, four days a week. It's a tithe. A tithe, of course, comes from the word tenth. Uh, in this case, yes, we're talking about money. But by the way, I think it's important to note she didn't stop at a tenth. She gave everything, uh, this above and beyond. And we see often with heroes in Scripture... They don't stop at the bare minimum of what God requires. They just say, I'm going to go above and beyond. David said, I cannot offer that to the Lord which costs me nothing. The more you learn about how good God is, the more you want to do more than just the bare minimum. And that's what we see here. She gave more. Why? Because she gave all she had, all she had to live on. She laid it down in front of God and said, Father, I'm going to have to trust you. May that be us. So, uh, Shakespeare said of England, uh, famously, to know her is to love her. To know God is to love him. The more I get to know Jesus Christ in his heart, the more I love him. The more, yeah, you can have a tenth of my stuff. You can have a twentieth. You can, I just want you to have it. Because as Paul said in, in Philippians 3, 7, But whatever were gains to me, I now consider lost For the sake of Christ, what is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ. I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Jesus Christ. So as we wrap up, I do want to say, when you look at the scribes, as they clung to their power, It evaporated. They lost it. But here's a widow who joyfully surrenders all that she has. And she was exalted. And my call, and beloved, your call, is to follow as as Christ enables in those steps. That's our privilege. May we leave here today with that on our minds, that on our hearts. Father, thank you so much. That your verdict on those of us who are found in Jesus Christ is that we are justified, we are adopted, we are being sanctified.
Father, thank you for the heart that you have for those of us who are discarded. That you're drawn to the sick, the poor, the needy, the broken, the brokenhearted. And Father, you're the great healer. May we leave here today with that truth imprinted on our hearts. And it's through Christ that we pray this. Amen. Amen. I love this young man. I love his passion and zeal for both the Lord and his word. And uh, you got to experience just a small part of that this morning. Uh, As this passage today ended with the widow who placed her whole life into God's hands, her whole security, we thought today is a good reminder for us that the offering is actually an act of worship during the morning services. And so here's what we're going to do. Uh, Many people give through online giving. It's a great, convenient thing. I do it. Sometimes, though, it causes me to forget. I can just let a plate pass, and it's like I'm not even, my heart's not engaged in that moment. So here's what we want to do this morning. If you're like me, and you do online giving, and you don't have something to give this morning, use the Keeping in Touch form, or simply, there's little offering envelopes in front of you. Just write your name on it, and here's what it is. I'm not asking you to, it's not like a promissory note that you're going to promise to give something later. Let this be, because the offering, when we give our tithes and our offerings, it's giving back to the Lord, but it's also this, exactly what that widow did, placing our trust in the hands of the one we call Master. And so this morning, we're going to do this. We're going to sing the doxology, followed by one song, and then we'll do the benediction. We're going to come forward this morning, like they do in India, and you'll see there's a basket here, a basket here, and two baskets over there, so there's, for the four sections, I'd ask that you go outward of whatever section you're in to the basket, then loop back around. And let this be your private moment with God. Whether you're giving something, cash or check this morning, if maybe it's just the keeping in touch form, but let it be this, as you touch that basket, let it be that momentary thing of, Lord, I place my life in your hands once again. That's what the giving of tithes and offerings is meant to be, a reminder. We really do trust him, and our lives are in his hands. So let this be an act of worship of you doing that together this morning. So come forward as you're led, and then we'll sing together. So let's stand and uh, do that. <laughs>